and welcome to The Watering Hole, a podcast for in-house lawyers brought to you by Stevenson Law. In this podcast, I interview in-house lawyers on top of their game, gaining insights from their experiences, challenges and hard-earned wisdom. I'm Alice Stevenson, the founder and CEO of Stevenson Law. Without further ado, let's begin. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Dan Kane. Dan has had a colourful career across private practice and in-house, leading him to found the O-Shaped Lawyer, a purpose-led initiative that advances what it means to be a well-rounded lawyer in the modern era. It's great to have you here, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. I think it'd be really great to start if you could maybe just tell you a little bit about your background and why you chose a career in law. Of course, yeah. So I trained at Deckert's, the American law firm. Why I went there is a really good question. We're going back 25 plus years, longer in fact. So I'm not sure I can remember exactly why I did it. I was in a peer group, I think at the time of high-performing people academically, and they were all going off to do careers that all sounded fabulous. And law was a degree I took not really knowing where I'd end up. In those days, I applied for a range of trading contracts and landed one, which I think was probably a more straightforward process than it is now. Certainly, the composition now seems a lot more rife and the talent that's coming through is incredible. But in those days, I seem to have made a load of applications, went to a load of interviews, landed a trading contract, and it went from there. So I spent eight years at Decker, having qualified six years as a commercial litigator and dispute resolution team before moving in-house to Network Rail, where I started doing disputes work, but it broadened out into a whole range of different topics and disciplines. And then eight years ago, I'd worked my way up to lead the regions team, be the GC of that team of about 30 lawyers. And until Easter this year, I ran that team. And at Easter, I decided to take a career change and start to run the O-shaped lawyer movement. So let's talk about the O-shaped lawyer, because this is what I'm particularly interested in. So you started the O-shaped lawyer when you were at Network Rail, and now you're doing it full time. So maybe could we start by just explaining what it is? What is the O-shaped lawyer? So the O of O-shaped represents well-rounded, and it's about the skills and capabilities of legal professionals, and more so now about the skills and capabilities of legal teams. O-Shaped started out life a few years ago when I was recruiting into the team at Network Rail and noticed a dearth of broader talent. So many people came and talked to me about the fabulous technical legal skills they had and how they could manage legal problems. But I saw very little in terms of the broader people skills, the human skills that I knew we needed to engage with our business in a very different way than historically we had. and. When I was struggling to find people, I said to our group general counsel at the time that, look, it's a real problem finding people that will really work with a team that is very people focused. And he said, what you look for is a well-rounded person. Then that's what you need. And I said, you're right. It's O-shaped. And O-shaped really started from there. And I started to engage with my peer groups, general counsel around different industries saying that there's a real kind of lack of focus on anything other than technical expertise. So O-Shape started as a very small movement of GCs looking to drive a very different approach to how we trained and developed lawyers. We saw the legal education system was very heavily weighted towards technical black letter law. And that found its way all the way through to leadership within law firms and in-house. 
So O-shaped, what started as a movement of general counsel, grew into something that then captivated law firms and legal educators in the UK, and has now become, I think, synonymous with much more of a cultural shift across the legal profession. So in one line, what is it? Well, it's a movement that's looking to drive a much more positive cultural change across the legal profession from law schools all the way through to leadership. Is it still focused predominantly on in-house lawyers and the skill sets that you need to be a successful in-house lawyer? No, it's really broadened out from those early discussions, Alice. When we first started it thinking from a client perspective, what are the skills we would expect of lawyers we hire and also of those lawyers we engage with externally and spend money with externally? Because I was starting to see, having been the lead for several external panel reviews, that there was misalignment between law firm and client. And much of that, I felt, was down to the broader capabilities of engaging with clients, about the broader capabilities of what customer service looked like. So these skills are really at the heart of much more than what does a competent and talented lawyer look like. This was about how are we operating as a service industry and what skills from a foundational perspective are we bringing to life to help lawyers deliver a better service to their end user? And so it really started to impact early years education. So law schools was an early stakeholder that we started to engage with and think, well, look at the programs that law schools are currently offering, which is really driving and reinforcing the message that being a lawyer or a legal professional is all about the law. And we knew from so much experience that that's such a simplification of what it means to work in our complex profession. So we've engaged with law schools who have been fabulous. We've engaged and partnered with Barbary Law School, BPP Law School, College of Legal Practice, three of the big players in the UK, to start helping them now develop programs that will be much more human and people-focused, as well as, of course, the foundational legal skills. And I'm really excited to say that our first O-Shape Lawyer module will be going live with the College of Legal Practice late August, early September, which will attract master's level credits, which is just such a privilege to be able to say that. And it's genuinely restored much of my faith in a system I'd struggled to have faith in before. That's really exciting. What does an O-Shape Lawyer look like? It splits into two areas, I think, Alice, mindset and skill set. So when O-Shape started off, I wanted to think of something that was really memorable. And I came up with the five O's. And this was all about the mindset, almost the opposite of the mindsets I'd seen throughout my 20 years at the time in practice. So we came up with the five O's of being open-minded, being opportunistic, taking ownership, being original in thinking, and being optimistic. Those five O's not only were intended to be memorable, but we're also intending to demonstrate that there is a mindset that when hiring lawyers or using external lawyers, that's required to move away from a very traditional fixed mindset approach. So you'll be familiar with the concept of growth mindset. That's what really the five O's are about. Do we have people who are willing to learn from others, to continuously improve, to really believe that they can be the very best that they can be, rather than simply accept that they are experts in a field And that's as far as they need to go. So the mindset's critical. If you don't have the mindset of people wanting to make a difference and change, 
then the skills and behaviours that follow are almost irrelevant. So then turning to those skills and behaviours, as part of our community of small GCs, we interviewed some of the leading general counsel in the UK, and we asked them what they felt were the attributes required. And we synthesise it down to three buckets of attributes around building relationships and the competencies that are needed to do that, collaboration, communication, emotional intelligence. And we also looked at value creation and the attributes that go with that around problem solving, around simplifying complex situations, and finally, adaptability and the skill sets that go with that in a complex world that we live. How do we create the skills needed to be much more adaptable around feedback, courage, resilience? And those 12 attributes have become the attributes of the O-shaped lawyer. Now, we're certainly not suggesting for one minute that every lawyer needs to excel in all of these areas. What we're highlighting are the attributes that will really help contribute to the success of legal professionals as they go through their career. An ideal solution is that a team of legal professionals, and I use that term deliberately because it's not just all about the lawyers, it's about the lawyers and the other professionals that work in a very allied and collaborative way, that the teams should be able to demonstrate those mindsets and capabilities together. Yeah. I mean, I think can certainly resonate with a lot of that in terms of the type of lawyers that I have working for me. But I know that in my experience working in-house and in private practice, it's also quite unusual. I completely agree with all of that that you've said. So if you are an in-house lawyer or even a private practice lawyer and you want to be more O-shaped, you recognise that you're not perhaps ticking all of these boxes, but you have a growth mindset and you want to develop yourself, How can they go about doing that? Do they come to you or do you have a training program or how does it work? I think there's a variety of ways, Alice. Certainly, we do have leadership development programs and a world-class faculty that have built up now to be able to deliver some of this training. But it's not just about training. Training is an important part of it if done properly, but it has to be a much more longer-term view that people take. This isn't something about let's do a two-hour course on communication skills and believe that we're going to turn into the most effective communicators. Much of what we're talking about here comes down to the cultural. This is why I say O-Shape has moved much more into the space of looking to drive cultural change. Because if we're in an environment where the billable hour remains very much the focus, certainly in big law, then time taken away from billing in order to learn and develop is often seen as a huge challenge. It's a barrier to being able to grow, learn, and develop. So what we're certainly doing, take in-house as an example, and I'll come on to private practice. In-house, for many years now, have started to look at how do they better embed or partner with their business colleagues to enable them to really create value for that business that they're for. Move away from this kind of old school approach of they're an overhead and therefore they need to prove their worth. Much of that comes from how do we really engage with our business in a better way? And what I've started talking to teams in-house about is much more, how do you embed this thinking and way of working in an O-shaped way as opposed to, here's a few skills, practice them, and you'll be awesome. It's much more about a way of working. How do we want to set ourselves up for success? So in our recruitment approach, in our performance management approaches, how do we want to bring these skills, mindsets, attributes to life in those everyday situations that we come across? Now, training and development is part of that, but it can't be the be-all and end-all. It has to form part of a much bigger jigsaw, which allows you to bring together 
the role of leaders. How much space are leaders giving their people? How much guidance are they giving their people to enable them to have different opportunities? Say it's secondments, for example, into the business. There are loads of pinch points where really high quality O-shaped teams can bring the mindset and attributes to life in everyday work. That's for me what will differentiate O-shaped from others. Not that they've done a course and can now hold a badge up with a certificate that says we've got four hours worth of training and collaboration. It's what you do day to day that really highlights that. And the tools and the resources that we help people to develop to enable them to do that is critical. And self-help. Ownership is one of the O's. So people have got to take more ownership of their own career, not simply wait for things to fall on their lap. Put your head above the parapet, take a chance, do something a little bit different and learn and recognize, and this is such a common feature in our profession, recognize that making mistakes is part of life. If you aren't making mistakes, you're not trying anything different. You're not trying anything new. You are in that fixed mindset space, a comfort zone that means progression and certainly working in an O-shaped way will be a huge challenge for you. So it really requires you to be working in an environment that's embracing this approach and this way of working where the leaders have fully bought into this and actually they appreciate and understand the benefits that this approach is going to bring to their team and to the wider business. I can imagine that that's not going to be the case universally. So you're bang on, right? As this comes down to what's the role of leadership, which is why I say this is from all the way from bottom up law school education through to leadership. If leadership is not creating that environment, what we talk about a lot in OSHIP is the psychologically safe environment for people to be able to express themselves freely without fear of retribution or blame, that they can contribute equally. Without that, it's a really difficult uphill struggle to start working in an O-shaped way. It needs much more transparency and honesty. So that's why I think that at the moment, there is a much more of an opportunity for in-house teams because they have got the space that some of the leaders, some fabulous general counsel that I know and meet and get introduced to who are incredible, who do exactly that. They create that space. They give people the opportunity to learn and grow. They support people when people make mistakes because they've been trying something new. Now, that's where I see a big divide between where in-house and private practices at at the moment, because that room for error, mistakes, trying something new doesn't exist in the same way. That constant theme that comes back about working on something that's not billable is not seen as valuable as something that is immediately billable. And so the challenge with private practice that I think presents a fabulous opportunity, by the way, as opposed to throwing stones and saying it's not good enough, do something better. It's a brilliant opportunity to be able to work with organizations that see the long-term benefit in creating that environment. That's a huge part of the work that O-Shape is now looking to do is partner with law firms who truly understand that in the long term, it's a much more sustainable way of working. And how is that going? I mean, have you already starting to see a positive impact of that or is it too early? How's it getting on? So it's possibly a bit early, but maybe I'm underselling the achievements that we've had in such a short space of time. With the law firms, we partnered with our first partner, Brown Jacobson, a couple of months ago. And that, I think, is a huge mark in the sand that there are firms out there who are recognizing that working 
in a different way can be a positive across their organization. And also importantly, because let's be honest, they are businesses that need to make money and need to be profitable, that recognizing that you can make money in a different way. And that clients, and certainly the clients I talk to every day, really value working with partners and external law firms who understand and appreciate them, their values, their purpose, what they're trying to achieve. And that's so much more than the transactional relationship that traditionally existed between in-house and private practice. So get this right. And I think this is where some of the partners that I hope will end up working with too, get this bit right, will actually increase profitability in the long term. But that needs a much more holistic look rather than year on year, what's the billing, what's the drawings, take that out the system. How can we start to create a bit more of a five-year look or 10-year look in a profession that is changing all the time, but we're simply, I think, still looking too short-term to enable the kind of cultural transformation we're talking about? Pause the podcast because I want to talk to you a little bit about our legal community called The Watering Hole. Our exclusive community of in-house lawyers come together online to network and impart knowledge. We host exclusive Legal Bite sessions, quarterly meetups, and members also benefit from a merch-packed welcome package and a monthly online magazine curated for the in-house lawyers called The Pool. Membership to the Water and Hole community is completely free, but spaces are limited. So if you want to join, then check out the link in the description of this episode. Right, back to the podcast. Well, this is something that I talk about quite a lot and I talk about purpose quite a lot on my social media channels and and that there are so many law firms that exist out there solely to line the pockets of the partners and actually they don't really care about much else and it's such a short-sighted approach. I don't think it's sustainable either. I mean, I've read a really good book called People Over Profits, which talks very much about what you just said and law firms can't survive without people. I think viewing people as a commodity in the way that so many lawyers are viewed as commodity is a very short-sighted view. And that's where a lot of our people-first approaches come from. And people-first came from, look, I'm not the first person to have used the phrase people-first, but I may have been the first person when I started in my GC role to say people-first, then lawyers, which is how we set up. That was for two reasons. One, predominantly because we wanted to engage in a much more human way with our business. We wanted the tag of lawyer to almost be dropped because that was a barrier to people opening up with us, which is crazy in one sense that we hold ourselves out here as being the profession with the highest integrity of trust and everything else. And yet we know our customers internally only really wanted to speak to us in crisis because frankly, they saw us as being there to help them get out of the rubbish. Whereas actually when we engage with them on a much more human basis, drop the lawyer tag, we started talking to them as human beings We became much closer to them and the issues they had, and we helped solve problems at source. So that was one issue. The other issue of people first was saying, look, we're human beings. We all have issues going on outside of work. We can't continue with this differentiation between work-life balance, which suggests you're happy outside work, but work is just awful. And we've just got to get through work so we can be happy outside. And so we started to recognize that you have one life and that work is a really important part of that life. But so is your family, so are your hobbies, so are all the other things that make you who you are. So that was the people first, then lawyers approach. 
And if I bring that back now to how we're looking at the engagement with law schools and law firms and in-house teams, but I think in-house teams are further ahead. So take law firms. I'm saying, imagine if we lived in a world where we didn't start with profit first and profit last, and everything else in the middle is just all a means to achieving that ultimate end profit. Well, obviously, we started with people first. If we looked out for our people and got them as motivated, engaged, and as close to doing meaningful work that really met their purpose and values personally, think about how much more loyal they would be in a world of talent attrition at the moment, which is sky high, the costs that that brings to organizations. And then if you've got people performing at their very best, in an environment that encourages that, clients will love that. Now, this is the hard message to get across, that certainly the client community, which has grown massively with O-Shaped over the last few years, the people I talk to would really value working with high-performing people who are healthy, who are well, who are working at their peak. That will ultimately lead to greater profitability. And the book you've just mentioned, one that I read very similar, was a book called The Heart of Business by Hubert Jolie. Very similar, looking at that approach that's saying business can be incredibly successful, in fact, more successful when you take a people-first approach. And that's the approach that O'Shea is trying to bring to the legal profession. It's a huge challenge, but as I said to you earlier on, it's a huge opportunity as well. Yeah, and one that I fully support. It's hard not to, right? In one sense, it's hard not to. You'll almost be thinking that, how would anyone not take this approach? But the challenge, I think, is that when you have a measure of success at the moment, as we do, which is PEP or revenue, that's the measure of success. So every incentive is aligned to achieve that. If we can create an environment where there are other measures of success. Take some of the kind of country. New Zealand was one. I think Australia's coming there too. But New Zealand was certainly one of the earlier leaders in this, which was saying, we're not just going to measure our success on GMP. We're going to look at other measures of the health of our country. And people are clearly are the main source of the health of our country. So if they're not healthy, our country can't be healthy. I think that we could start to bring measures of different indicators of success into the legal profession too that will drive different incentives that will hopefully start to shift the dial. We run quarterly engagement surveys at Stevenson Law, which gives us, you know, a quarterly engagement score, which is also broken down into into the different teams. And then we actually measure our heads of department on the engagement score of their teams. So they have direct accountability for how happy and engaged their team are. And I think that that's really important. I agree. And there's got to be that engagement survey. So I talk a lot about engagement employee experience. And that engagement survey needs to be something that is, again, in a psychologically safe environment. So people feel that they can be open and honest in those surveys. Because I hear of too many surveys within our industry that people tell me, well, we've asked our people and 98% of people love working here. It's amazing. Now, we know that you look at any of the major engagement survey providers, the top quartile, you know, is very rare to achieve in getting anything above the 75%. And in fact, most would hover between, I imagine, and I'm doing this from instinct on what I've seen, roughly, let's say, high performing or at 60 to 70%. So to think that 98% are saying it's amazing, everything's great, suggests to me that they're not operating in an environment where people feel that they're safe to share. If it was more around the 70 mark, you'd go, okay, but 98% is almost too good. 
And yeah. I'm not sure that's reflective of how people feel about the environment they're working in. If it is, and they're doing well, let's share that magic because yeah. frankly, we all want yeah. to Next question that I'd love to ask you is how the Osho Law has actually impacted you personally. Yeah, it's a good one because it, in so many ways, maybe the best way to tell you about this is to tell you where it came from. And that will hopefully give you and, and the listeners more of a feel for why this is so important to me and, and my personal crusade with this. So going back eight years, I've got two kids, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. When Oliver, the eight-year-old, was born, he was born very sick. And he was born with a critical heart condition called a critical pulmonary stenosis, which is one of the valves is fused in his heart. It means blood can't get through to the lungs, means he can't breathe. He spent his first month at Great Ormond Street, had an operation when he was four days old, and he was premature as well. So he was tiny and he had a tiny little heart the size of a walnut. And the surgeon there operated on his heart and sat down with us after the operation and said it had been a success. And this is the prognosis of my wife and I's first child. So we were clearly massively impacted in every which way you can imagine. And this is what we've done. This is how it's going to look going forward. And we'll obviously have regular interaction with you, but the prognosis is good. And so Oliver's doing very well. He's eight years old and he's doing well. But probably a year after that operation and the conversation with the surgeon, after that year of you know real personal reflection, challenge, I start to think about what am I doing? What am I in my role doing this, making a difference. I was working on agreements that would be looking at a word in a line and a clause in a contract that no one really cared about. Actually, it wasn't important, particularly to anyone, let alone having an impact more broadly across the profession or even on wider society. So I really started to have, as many people do when they have that life-changing experience, started to reflect and think, I want to do something different. I took a year out of the legal team at that point. I wasn't progressing to the next level. And as you know, in-house teams are very flat structures. So I had to move out in order to move up. And I moved out into a commercial role at that point as a senior program manager, learned a whole new different way of working, learned a whole host about how different teams look at continuous improvement, look at how they work with their teams, and was able to bring that back then when the leadership role in the legal team became available a year later. But I also knew that having spent eight years or seven and a half years doing that leadership role and really focusing on the team, the team development, how I watched people thrive was the most amazing thing for me to see. And that's genuine. You know, it's not so altruistic that you see people you're working with and leading thrive because it made me feel good, right? So I'm getting the, the win-win out of that. But what it showed me truly was if you take a very people-oriented approach, you really care about the people that you're leading, that they are so much more likely to succeed. And I had five heads of legal, certainly the latter part, all female. And I would speak to them constantly in one-to-ones. They were very open. I spoke to them regularly about their menopause or impact of their monthly cycle and what that was having on their performance at work. It was a really open sharing environment. And that for me was part of the role. I was really enjoying the conversations with people. And we would have regular conversations that were completely outside of the day-to-day work. But I watched people grow and thrive. And I thought, why do we not do more of this within our profession? Not necessarily the detail of the conversation I've shared, but why do we not do more of this open leading and sharing and leadership taking a role that is not about doing the work all day, but it's about enabling people who work for you, with you, 
to be the very best they can be. That for me was a real driver in taking O-Shape to the world because I'm passionate about good leadership. I think it really does drive the direction of travel of an industry and certainly a company. And I don't think that it's been a focus enough in the legal profession. I think leadership in law firms certainly traditionally has been who's billed the most, who's brought the most money in. You become a partner and therefore you're a role model and leader. But I don't think that is indicative of what a leader should be. And if we want to attract the next generation of leaders within the profession who we want to be broader-minded, who we want to come with different perspectives, interests, values, then we need role models, leaders, who are people they should be looking up to and saying, well, if that person, the way they behave and thrive and lead, then surely I can. Rather than the moment, conform to what's there and not be yourself, conform or move on. And that's such a waste of talent that we're missing out on in the profession. So personally, O-Shape is allowing me to do what I love every day. And what more can you say than that, right, in terms of doing a role? I feel like we're having an impact. We're certainly opening up the conversations. We're certainly talking about things that are uncomfortable, very much like you do, Alice, in what you talk about regularly. But unless we do create the space for these difficult conversations that allow people to share what matters to them personally so that they're able to do work that's meaningful, that really allows them to have value in what they're doing. That's when they're at their best. And surely the role of leadership is to have your people operating at their very best. And that isn't just about working 16 hours a day on stuff that's not interesting. That's about their whole life experience that they bring to work that's when they'll be able to perform at their best. And that's what O-Shape is enabling me to do. Yeah. And give them some meaning to their work as well. Correct. Meaning's everything, right? It goes back yeah. to, you know, those examples that are very well trodden out examples of the president going to NASA and asking the person who's sweeping the floor, what are they doing? And they say, I'm putting a man on the moon because they're obviously aligning what every single job is in that organization to the ultimate aim. And this comes right back to purpose that we've spoken about, which is, are people aligned to the purpose of the organization that they are in? Does it mean something to them? And that's much easier in an in-house environment than it is perhaps in a private practice one. People will choose to join corporates as lawyers because they might really believe in the purpose of that organization, the mission of that organization. Whereas that's harder for law firms, isn't it? Because what is the purpose and mission that you are looking to join so that you can be part of something that makes a difference? I'm not sure firms have really landed on it authentically yet. I know the conversations are there, and I know there are from leaders within law firms some really fabulous open conversations about being clear about the purpose of their organization. But that's really hard when all we see, I think, certainly in the press is PEP has gone up to this million, that million, that million. It feels like purpose is too aligned with money, and that can't be right. Yeah, no, I agree. So if you think back to before you started in the legal profession, what do you wish that you had known about the legal profession at that stage? I think looking back now, I doubt whether I would have gone into the legal profession. You know, you asked me earlier on what made you do it, and I never had a very clear reason why, and I'm not sure I would do it now. I would certainly have wanted to be much more aware of what it meant to get into the profession. I'm not in any way... Now, suggesting I haven't had an incredible last 20 plus years 
in the profession I have, and I've had some brilliant experience. But the reason I'm now doing something different is because there was something missing throughout all of that. I would have loved to have been able to have been in an environment much earlier that had more progressive mindset and been more confident about bringing my mindset to that. I always felt like a bit of a square peg in a round hole in private practice. The bits that I really loved was the bits with the clients, but that was such a small part of being a junior mid-lawyer. I would certainly want to enable the profession to have a different threshold of what it meant to be a high-quality lawyer. At the moment, the solicitor's competency is, is a very low bar, and that bar is very geared towards the technical side again. I'd love to have seen an equalization much more between the IQ and the EQ, the emotional intelligence I'm talking about now and, and are so passionate about. But you know what? Maybe it's taken two decades since I started for this to become a thing within the legal profession. It was elsewhere in different sectors, probably two decades ago, that people were talking much more about the impact of emotional intelligence. But maybe it's just taken that time for the legal profession to catch up. Would I change anything? Yes, but do I regret it? No. Do you know what you would have been if you hadn't gone into law? Uh, <laughs> there's a whole variety of things I would have loved to have done. <laughs> what I would have studied now, if I had the chance to go back now, I would have studied something in social sciences, psychology, something like that. The way people work fascinates me. That's become a huge part of the work that we've been doing is looking at a lot of the neuroscience of leadership. What is it that drives people and motivates people in the way that they operate? That, for me, would have been an area that I'm fascinated by now. I would have known a thing about it back then. You know, it just didn't even occur to me. But yeah, yeah and I'm not yet in the position to think, will I go and do another degree? No, I think that's probably past me. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I'm a really big believer in the impact of the O-shaped lawyer mindset, and it's been really great hearing about it in more depth. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences with me. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Watering Hole podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. I'm Alice Stevenson, and this has been brought to you by Stevenson Law a legal services provider that supports fast-growth tech businesses from idea to exit. See you next time.